Hello and welcome back to Adulting Anonymous. My name is Kudai, your host, and I am so glad you could tune in. Today on our podcast, we have someone coming for us to drag us. He's literally coming into our houses and helping us with our finances. We are joined by Miss Samantha Amina Masauso, and she is a personal finance coach and a blogger and i'll just hand over to her for her to introduce herself and tell us more about herself hi kudzai hi everyone um my name is samantha joanna amina masauso as kudzai has indicated um by day i'm a software developer and by night i'm a master's student a personal finance uh, blogger and a personal finance coach hectic well so great to have you here um you mentioned that you're a software developer how does a software developer become a personal finance coach do you want to walk us through how that came about yeah sure you know the one good thing about it despite the long hours and, you know, all of those misconceptions that people tell you that IT pays a lot, it doesn't, Um, (laughs) is when you work in in tech, you have the ability to work in various fields and you're still doing the same thing. For example, you can work in medical care, you can work in engineering, you can work in consultancy, you can work in banking, but you're still doing software development, you know, so that's, that's one of the great things about working or about being a person in the tech industry. So this is what happened to me. I straight out of university, I got a job in a bank, you know, I was moving forward. Uh, Yep, we know that. We now got it. Yeah, I was moving forward and I started working. I worked there for six and a half years up until last year, January. And in that time, I I was very fortunate enough that my work experience um, opened my eyes to the greater banking uh, industry. And I got an opportunity to study banking itself. I have a certificate in banking. Over and above that, I also got uh, trained in various banking products, like, you know, the sections of banking. You've got personal and business banking. You've In personal and business banking, you've got home loans. You've got um, transactional mm-hmm which is your day-to-day transactions you've got savings and investments you've got um asset vehicle and asset finance you've got secured and unsecured lending well so you've got um all those various elements that make up this component of banking that has something to do with you as an individual and not as a business and that was what i got extensively trained on because um, my then boss believed um, if you were going to be an effective software software engineer in his department, he wanted you to have the knowledge of what the products that you were building um, did and the impact. He he was very concerned about the downstream in the the downstream impact and the multiplier effect. And luckily, that was my boss's boss. My boss, she was game and she sent us for training for all of these things. And um, it really was a great experience for me because I learned about money and I learned about people and, you know, Mm -hmm. how the mindset of how we as people start making financial decisions, you know, and the new for the banking industry and things like that. Uh, it took a while for me to then get into the personal finance, the really, really get into the personal finance space. Because remember, when you're looking at a, at the banking system, you're looking at a business. A bank is a business. Yeah. So, yeah. It, yeah, it took a while. It's only when 
I I think it was about two years later and I decided to put my big girl panties on and make big girl decisions that I actually started applying everything that I learned in 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 banking and in the training that I got to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't take all the credit. My lawyer is also primarily responsible for all the knowledge that I have because she put me on the path. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. How would you describe your relationship with money before you took the training that your employer obviously signed you up for and the whole big girl panty purchase, which I'm pretty sure we can all guess. But how would you describe your relationship with your finances before that and after? So before, um, let me actually say before 24, because the big girl purchase happened when I was 24, 25. And um, after 24. So before 24, I was a very, I can't say I was a person who believed in the you only live once um, philosophy because I did save, right? But I was a person who thought that, you know, nothing could change. I'm on this wave. Um, And I I do admit that I was a bit of a shopaholic. I, I, I loved to shop and I did so primarily because I was also going through a lot of personal issues. And instead of dealing with my personal issues, I was Mm -hmm. actually taking it out, uh, taking all my issues out in the shopping mall, you know, Mm -hmm. and when I when I look back, I actually cried because I was like, okay, if I, I did save, because had I, had I not been saving in all those years, I wouldn't have achieved any of the things that I then went on to do in life. But I could mm. have saved a whole lot more. I could have done a whole lot more. Like uh, the biggest lesson my before 24 period uh, taught me is money looks great on your feet but it is useless on your feet. So like everyone knows I have a very, very deep passion for shoes. I love shoes and um, I bought shoes. I did. I bought a whole lot of shoes, but when you come Mm -hmm. to think of it, uh, shoes, unless they're collector's items, they're not a very good investment, you know? And three years Three, about three and a half years later, all my shoes were stolen. So, <laughs> um, had I actually Ouch. saved, most, yeah, had I actually saved most of that money, I would have done something more. I'm not saying people shouldn't shop or any of those things. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just saying, you know, we need to be wiser about the way we make decisions. If I look at my post twenty four period, I actually have a very decent relationship with money. Um, if I was to put it on a scale of one to 10, I would say nine. The reason I'm saying nine is because there's a 1%, there's a 10% factor with money when it comes to all of us that is with, that is not within our control. So these are things yeah. that, can happen that will affect your finances, but you don't have any control over how they happen. So yeah, that's me. <laughs> Hectic. Okay, a lot of insights there. So you mentioned how you, before your big purchase, you were saving. So it was a, your relationship with money wasn't so bad. I want to dive into saving, but before we do that, I want to ask: We have obviously been hit with an uncertain, rude awakening called COVID nineteen. And a lot of people are struggling with finances, you know, and these people that are losing jobs, these people that didn't have any savings, like you were speaking about your savings. And I just wanted you to let us in on what we should have been doing before COVID-19, like before, let's say around, well, in South Africa, around February, when this whole thing started creeping up and then the lockdowns all happened, what should we have been doing with our finances to ensure that we were okay? Okay, so 
as we're getting into this discussion, I think it's very important for us. Something we should have done at the very beginning is put out oh, a yes. that anything that we're discussing here is meant for education and entertainment purposes. And if you do want to get financial advice, because I'm not a financial advisor, um, so this is not legal or financial advice. If you do want financial or legal advice, please please go and consult with a registered financial professional uh, and make sure their certification is valid and also mm, major a key. Yeah, a registered legal professional. So uh, what should we have been doing, right? So COVID-19 came, um, we started hearing rumors about COVID around January, right? Despite the fact mm-hmm. that there's been reports that it was around for probably three months prior. Now, that January, February period, right, for a lot of countries and not just South Africa, is the end of the tax year. And it's also the beginning of the financial year. March is the beginning of, a, of the financial year for a lot of people. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, when you look at what we should have been doing as people, as individuals, we should have been sitting down first and foremost, everything, something that we should do at the beginning of every year is sitting down and revising our um, financial statuses. Uh, This means looking at our contracts. This means doing a very thorough impact assessment on, of our finances, looking at our finances from a perspective of where if someone was to draw a picture of my of my financial life right now and put in everything that has something to do with me financially, this is what it would look like. Or think of it as writing a book. You were also meant to be in a season of renegotiating contracts, right? So this is a time yeah. where you're talking to your insurance or your medical aid and you're trying to already... Some, some of it happens around October, November, December, but this is also a time where you can do it, right? You are negotiating for things like medical aid, your insurance, you are reassessing your insurance premiums, you are mm-hmm. looking at how my next 12 months is going to be like right mm-hmm. so you know and it's it's major it's really important that people know they can actually negotiate these things some people stay with the same premium and they just accept yeah. those raises forever and you know what's even funny is even with your rent you can negotiate for your for a rent freeze or a rent decrease people don't know they can it's- do that you can, yeah, you can. What? You can ask your landlord, you know, to freeze your your rent your for rent. the year. Mm. So, um, over and above that, you were now you are you are also in a space where you are now defining your financial goals for the year, right? So this yep. comes in. This now comes into play the question of how much should I save or how much should I have saved to cushion myself mm. against the COVID nineteen. Now, first yeah. of all, I think it's very important for people to understand that there is there is something that you could have done, but to a greater extent, COVID was so unexpected to a point where people have to accept the fact that no matter how much planning they did, some things are out of their control, right? Nothing could have prepared you, yeah, that's true. Nothing, yeah, nothing could have prepared anyone. And when I look at it, I look at it, um, I also look at people who are in the freelance space or who are in the arts industry, who are in the gig economy, you know, so they come in for a gig, they get paid and they go. COVID hit at a point where they had budgeted for the next three months, the, the first three months of the year because it's downtime and January and February, there's not much work. You know, work mm. starts picking up around March, but it's not even a lot. You know, towards the end of March, then work starts picking up. So um, they they had saved and had made this beautiful plan to say, I have income to sustain me for the next three months, right? Yeah. From January. Then COVID hits and you don't have in you don't have income for the three months after the three months that you saved for, right? 
and mm -hmm. we were also in that space where uh, school fees needed to be paid we were coming mm -hmm. out of the december phase because december is mm -hmm. in in africa december is probably the most lucrative time of the year for any financial institution for any retail institution so we were looking at we were getting out of that phase so I think the biggest lesson, to be honest, that we can take from this is that we now need to save over and above for December and for the months that are coming. Because a lot of people were caught unawares. This was a time where the December's the the, the savings they had put aside, it it wasn't enough to sustain them post mm. uh, post the 1st of March or post the end of March for some people. What could you have done? It was important for you to have, to have a debt repayment strategy to know where you stand um, financially because I say debt repayment because the best thing that can, that can sustain a lot of people right now is to have as little debt as possible. Because when you have mm -hmm. little debt, you have more capital or you have more income or money or cash flow, whatever you choose to call it, to divert to other things. Debt is an yeah. obligation you all need to pay if you do have debt and you can't run away from it. So that was that's one. You know, no, that's two actually. Know where you stand financially. Secondly, have as little debt as possible or have a very robust um, debt repayment plan. And thirdly, uh, save it's very important yeah. to save the issue of emergency yeah. things comes into into uh, into discussion here yeah that is very important so the reason why i asked for what we could have done before covid 19 is that we do have individuals that are well their income streams have not been changed so if you have a stable salary you're still earning a salary and if anything you're actually saving more because you're on lockdown and you're not doing much so hopefully people can still operate in a pre-covered mindset and still save and still take out as little debt as possible despite the fact that debt seems cheaper now and obviously saving as well so that's great so now that we are in COVID 19 which is the important part, I guess, like now that we find ourselves here, what do you think we should be doing? I mean, there's so many words and jargon that's being thrown around. We've got we've got payment holidays that are just being discussed. We've got people who've had their salaries slashed into half or by a third. We've had people that have lost jobs. You know, um, the people that had side hustles that are, aren't obviously bringing in any money right now. So just to obviously not see flames, what should we be doing now? And in the next, I don't know, in the foreseeable future to ensure that we uh, manage our finances properly and that they can sustain us. And besides just being in survival mode, we can also flourish in this season. So what can we do to be in that position? Oh, that's that's actually a very good question. Um, how do you how do you stop your finances from working against you, basically? So, mm. first of all, we go back to basics. Do a financial analysis. Know everything that has anything to do with you that has a dollar value attached to it, right? So mm -hmm. you've got a very clear picture of everything, and not just what you owe, because People automatically fall into, I've got debt and I need to pay debt. And that's my only financial responsibility. That's actually not true. There are other financial aspects of your life, like investments, like policies. And like what you're saying, you know, your salary is slashed. What do you do in mm. that case? What does the labor law say in that case? What does your mm. employer's compensation plan say in situations like this so it's a lot of work in terms of going out and seeking knowledge and putting your your finances together in such a way that you have one view of them now that is done you now know everything that you can possibly know about your money the second thing that you do is you categorize 
what's important, what can I completely get rid of, what can I cut down on. And then when you do that, you place terms on it. You say, if I need to cut down on this, for how long am I cutting down on it? If I need to negotiate um, a better deal for myself, for how long can I negotiate the deal for? Negotiate. No. Yes. Mm. So you've got um, periods of three to six months, which is the ideal situation, right? That uh, mm-hmm. after six months, things will go back to normal or we'll have a new normal that, that, that isn't too bad to get adjusted to, you know, um, six to 12 months or six to nine months and then 12 months and beyond, you know. So these, these are, this is a type of plan that you now need to come to you now need to bring to life do you need to speak to your bank and ask for a payment holiday do you need to speak to your bank and extend your repayment your repayment term you know if you have a mortgage maybe you have a mortgage for for 15 years do you need to make it 20 years in the meantime so that you pay less of course, in the long term, it, it means you pay more interest. But if it's something that you need to do right now, you know, so that you have a little bit more cash flow to put food on the table, then do that. So these are the things that we now need to plan for. What are you getting rid of? Do you need to downsize your car? Do you need to mm. cut down on, you know, nice times? Do you need to now, now stop shopping at Woolies and, you know, shop at Pick and Pay? or checkers so Mm. these are um do you need to put your black tax recipients on a budget and tell them guys you know what it's austerity so we are cutting we are cutting down on what we have do you need to call your insurance um people or your life insurance provider and say you know there's a clause in my contract that said that in terms of retrenchment i can get a payout right i'm cashing in that yes do you need to now go to your uh, financial services provider and say i am unable to earn an income for the next three to six months or whatever can i get a payment holiday over and above that can the credit insurance that was attached to the financial agreement that you and Mm. i had kick in and take over my payments so these are things do you need to call your landlord and say landlord can we negotiate a way can i pay half the rent or can i pay a third of the rent uh, periodically because you know things are tough those are the yeah. type of situations that we now need to be having and you know when you go to people and you're asking for these extensions or you're asking for you know for a renegotiation have your facts straight tell them i anticipate that in 6 months my life will be back to normal or i anticipate that in 9 months my life will be somewhat back to normal and i can pick up my my responsibilities again that is so 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 insightful i think what's very important is people like you mentioned people going back to their contracts that they signed and actually reading them. Because some people, I stress again, people don't know that they have credit insurance. People don't know that they can actually negotiate these things. But anyway, um, thank you for that. So now I want to dive into something you mentioned, which is a payment holiday, right? What is a payment holiday and in what situations should we be taking payment holidays up? So first of all, let me say that payment holidays existed before COVID-19 because people are now thinking, oh, um, it's COVID-19 and it's a feature that is offered by the banks um, as a way of, of, no, payment holidays have always existed. But then thanks to COVID-19, some of the terms and conditions have been relaxed a little bit to give people a little bit more relief. So a payment holiday essentially is... um, temporary relief measure whereby you are given a holiday essentially from paying from repaying your financial obligations to your financial services provider provided that you can prove that the reason why you are you are unable to meet your financial obligations is beyond your control or is an act of Mm -hmm. god or is something that has been sudden and there's nothing you can do about it. 
Uh, for example, a couple of years ago, I unfortunately lost my house in um tornado, right? And mm. luckily for me, I had very good insurance at that point in time. And well, thanks to, you know, good financial planning, I wasn't too badly affected. Well, I resorted to my savings and things like that, but I wasn't too badly affected to the point where I had to ask the bank that I had to stop paying for the duration of the time that I wasn't living in the house, you know. But some people, yeah, yeah, some people in my complex went and they got it approved. So should you be taking a payment holiday? Question is, do you need a payment holiday? Because the thing is, the bank, yeah, the bank is going to say no if they feel that you do not need a payment holiday. So that's what I said. When you go in and you negotiate for things like this, you need to have your facts straight and you need to have a very clear picture of what is happening. The other thing that people need to note is it's a temporary relief measure. If you take Mm -hmm. a holiday, right, it doesn't mean that the 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 repayment amount that you're supposed to pay within that payment holiday period goes away no it's nope. just tagged on to the end of your payment um it basically gets postponed and it also incurs interest right it attracts interest if not at a higher rate so what happens now is it depends on how you negotiate it because some people are able to negotiate uh, for an interest-free payment holiday. So essentially, they've moved the six months to the end of their payment term, right? And it's not curing interest. In some cases, it is unavoidable. You will incur interest over the outstanding balance. You know, they will calculate based on the outstanding balance. So you don't pay for six months. Your capital repayment has no contribution to it over the next six months that you're not paying. On the seventh month, they are going to calculate how much you owe, and then they are going to calculate the interest from there. So you'll find out that uh, you might end up owing a little bit more thanks to taking a payment holiday. So it's very important to exhaust all other avenues that you can except getting into more debt that's very important mm-hmm. before you take a payment holiday a payment holiday that's deep okay just i actually forgot to mention these questions are questions we got on instagram when you ask people what questions they have relating to their finances so i'm just gonna go ahead and ask the next one we also had a repo rate reduction during COVID-19. Well, we had one before and after. I think we've now had two repo rate reductions. And someone asked, what is the effect of the repo rate reduction? I guess we can talk about that. In We can link that to from a consumer perspective, like an, a normal individual. So... The reason why, uh, especially with COVID-19, right, um, the repo rate is very good on us is, is it makes our debt obligations a little bit cheaper. Well, I'm stretching the word a little because I think if there's a scale, we can put it on medium, right? So because the repo mm-hmm. rate was reduced by two and a half, overall two and a half to uh, 2%, so essentially, mm-hmm. let's say you had a revolving credit agreement and you were paying 17% interest on this credit agreement. Now your interest rate has been reduced and now you're paying 15, right? Why was this done? So that people can have a little bit more cash flow in times like this. And this cash injection can go directly into the economy. The government is losing money in terms of all of the structures that they have to put in to provide relief for everyone um, in one way or the other. So the best And just also the the absence of economic activity, I guess. Yeah. So they're Mm. not collecting a lot of taxes from the way that they normally collect tax, but then they can collect tax in terms of that, in terms of, you know, um, import export taxes, the stuff that we're still allowed to buy or import or export, you know. So these are the, the, the that's why um, the repo rate is very good for consumers because right now it's making the 
it's making life a little bit cheaper for you as a consumer and that's the biggest biggest mm. advantage of the of this reduction if you're in a position where you are not too badly affected by you know the pandemic this would be an incredible time to pay off your debt if you have any like cash in and go in hard and cuz i don't think we're ever going to see the interest rates anywhere in the world as low as they are right now ever again okay. i think it's going to happen that is that is so deep but then isn't this just for the debt that's variable cuz some so, people have fixed rates so that doesn't change anything right so for you know for your variable variable lending and for your um asset backed lending you can still go and negotiate for your for a reduction in the interest rate even if you had tried to peg or fix your interest rate people especially with home loans you find that there are people who then go and say okay the interest rate is 8% right can i peg it at mm-hmm. 8.5 for the next 5 years so that if the interest rates rise i am not too badly affected you know but that pegging means that you pay a little bit more in terms of interest it works well if the interest rate rises it doesn't work so well if the interest rate you know um decreases but you can still go and negotiate uh, the one thing that a lot of the con- a lot of the fi- financial services providers have done is they've kind of relaxed the laws a little bit because it's not making them a lot of money for people to default right now no one has the money to pick up the slack of what we defaulted on so it's better for them to reach a, a decent point for you right and uh, at least keep you in the system and have you managing your finances in a proper way than to have you blacklisted or to have you in a position where you can't pay now for things like uh the worst hit situations will be things like personal term loans you know you borrow money for 2 years and that's it there is no revolving mm. plan on that you can't negotiate on that and that is the biggest biggest drawback to that but for everything else that has a variable interest rate linked to it or is asset backed you're good to go i do need to say though the downside of the there is a downside the downside of the repo rate reduction is that your savings deposits the interest payout on your savings deposit also also decreases down. oh my gosh i hadn't thought of it from that perspective yikes i hate it okay anyway whilst we are on savings let's can you please just explain the difference between savings an emergency fund and investing so that's the other question mm-hmm. i like the question because um we i will explain why as i answer it saving uh technically is just putting money away to be used at another time right mm-hmm. uh, investing is putting money to work so that the money grows the intention of investing is growth of money. Uh an emergency fund is a savings is a saving that you put aside so that you in case of an emergency you have immediate cash flow to cushion you for the duration of the emergency or for a period of time, you know. People say that yeah. uh you should have between 3 to 6 months worth of income as an emergency fund. um it depends some people can have up to 12 some people can have 6 yeah it depends <laughs> it also depends on you as a person are you saving on gross or are you saving on net but any an emergency fund the purpose of an emergency fund and of saving in general is not to grow or to have exponential growth in the money that you put aside it's literally to have funds that you put away and uh one of the biggest differences between savings and investments is the vehicles you use right um mm-hmm. you can't say um 
I'm investing when you're putting money into a 32-day notice deposit account, you're saving because the, the return on those accounts is very low, right? And yep. you can't say, I'm saving for an emergency. I have an emergency fund. And then we say, okay, where's your, where's your emergency fund? And then you'll be like, no, I have an apartment that I'm renting out that um, my tenant pays rent, but then the rent goes into paying for the mortgage for the apartment. So it, it the savings vehicle becomes very important in this. An emergency save an emergency fund uh, is meant to be readily available. You know, it's mm-hmm. meant to be needed today. You need to be able to access this, access it today. You don't need to sell shares to access the cash. You don't need to, um, you know, sell the property or sell the investment to have to have it readily available savings over and above the emergency fund savings you will get some growth in your savings depending on the vehicle that you're using but the purpose is not you can't get wealthy from saving you really can't that's true that's that's the sad truth myself included i think people have this thing where they think when you save and you're looking at the money and it's chilling in the bank then you are good to go. And honestly, it doesn't do any, yeah, it's pointless. It's pointless. Because now look at the rent declining and now you're looking at your money losing value and it's just ridiculous. And if you are investing, you now need to think about the risk that you're taking because Mm. the more you take, the more return you get. But there's the one golden rule of investing. Do not invest money you can't afford to lose, right? I think COVID has taught a lot of people that cashing in on trends doesn't pay. You know, you need to have a very level head when you decide to invest in anything, be it property, be it livestock, be it buying shares. Um, Mm. You have a very level head because what people had anticipated didn't work out well. The purpose of investing is to grow wealth, to grow your money. Mm. And understand. uh, Yeah. And it's long term. So you don't, Mm. you don't put uh, 15,000 rand in an investment scheme today and expect 30,000 rand tomorrow. It takes time. Uh, Yeah. So that's major key. Whilst we're still on investments, someone asked, how does one invest slash ensure that their investments aren't affected by COVID-19? Side note, I don't think you can make sure anything is not affected by COVID-19, but I'll hand it over to you. So the question is, how does one invest slash ensure their investments aren't um, affected by COVID-19? So I think it's a two-part question. Yeah, so... You can't, ins- like you're, you're very right, Kudzai. There is no 100% foolproof that your investments will not be affected by COVID-19. In fact, there is no 100% foolproof method of investing that ensures that your money will be safe either way, right? Yeah. However, this is now about risk. Now you manage the risk yeah. and minimize the risk. And the best way to minimize risk in in terms of savings and investments is to actually diversify. Diversify. Mm. Do not put your eggs in one basket. In one basket. Preach. The best thing. (laughs) And you know, we we get excited and we get a little bit greedy because when we talk about money, we also have to talk about the human emotion and, and the human thought process that goes into why we make the money decisions that we make. This is why people mm. cash out trains because the greed is there that I want to make it now and I want to do it now and I need to make the most um, the most money now. Oh, wow. Here's the catch with that though, Kudzai is that when you cash in on trends and you cash in on things that you feel a very high reward, you go all in with your eggs in one basket and you're putting something in a very high risk situation where you can potentially lose it all. The best thing to do 
with an investment portfolio is to have a very diversified investment portfolio. Uh, for example, let me try and give this example in two minutes and under. You have mm. 200 Rand and you want to invest 200 Rand, right? How do you ensure that, how do you, what measures do you take to ensure or to try and ensure to the best of your ability that your 200 Rand is not completely lost? You take a small portion, you take 20 Rand and you put it in a tax-free savings account, right? Mm-hmm. You then take another 20 Rand and you invest in livestock, you know. You then take 30 Rand and you invest it in a gold-backed unit trust. A gold-backed unit trust give a lot of precious metal-backed unit trusts, uh, best-performing unit trusts uh, as of last year, and they give a return of about 60, 60% maximum, right? And it will depend on mm-hmm. how much you invest. You then, so we had 70 bucks, right? You take 30 bucks, and you then decide, okay, let me invest in property, right? You either buy shares in a property company or you buy property itself. This is a hypothetical example. Now you are at yep. 100 bucks. You take, you then decide, okay, I'm going to take another 40 bucks and I'm going to buy shares. But then my share portfolio will have 20, uh, you will have 10 bucks in a, in a, in a pharmaceutical company 10 bucks in an oil company, 10 bucks in a finance company, and 10 bucks in whatever other asset class or business class that you decide to invest on. So you've got 60 bucks left. What are you going to do with that 60 bucks? You then go and put 30 bucks in um in an ETF, and the rest of the 30 bucks you can look at any other avenue of investment that you can think of, a money market account, or you can then decide to buy an asset. So if it so happens that COVID comes in, the oil company is hit, right? For example, your 10 bucks mm-hmm. is going to not give you a very good return. But the other 30 bucks is going to give you a decent return still because these are industries that are still working. Your property, your landlord cannot pay. But then you have 30 bucks in that property, right? Your Sorry, your tenant cannot pay. You have 30 bucks in that in that property, but uh, the rest of your assets are still paying somewhere, somehow. So this is what I mean by diversifying your portfolio. People think that diversification means if I have shares in one company, then I'm going to buy shares in another company of the same type. No, you actually need no. to look at various industries that are completely different from each other that you can buy shares in. You know, people who bought shares in Netflix, for example, or Apple are uh, sitting pretty at this point in time. And people who yeah. watch it, you can pay, are cashing in because those companies mm. are going out. But people who bought shares in Sasa are crying because no one's going anyway. <laughs> so the petrol price is not very conducive for Sasa. But yeah, no, that's that's a great lesson in diversifying portfolios. I should actually charge for this episode and cash <laughs> in on that advice. Anyway, all right, we've got two questions left. The first one is, you know how in our salary slip, we have like our gross income and then we have all these deductions that are taken, basically leaving us with peanuts, but we're not there. The question is, are policies such as retirement annuity, life insurance, or an additional retirement annuity in that case, are these policies still necessary in this age? Because, I mean, we don't have much money to be wasting. (laughs) We don't have much money. So is it necessary for us to continue paying these out or allowing these deductions to go through? Yes, it's very necessary. And I'll say... We don't, we need to have, like I've said before, we need to have a very level head when it comes to making financial decisions at this point in time. Why? It's very important for us not to be penny wise and pound foolish. COVID won't mm. last forever. Junk status won't last forever. Uh, a retirement policy is not meant to give you relief right now. It's meant to give you relief 
in the future. I remember one person actually said on Twitter that um, COVID-19 is showing us what retirement is going to be like. You know, you don't have an income mm. stuck at home every day. So if you're not planning uh, accordingly for retirement, you're going to cry. And just because you stopped That's the true. payment to your retirement annuity, knowing the government laws in, the, in, in South Africa in particular, doesn't mean that the money that you invested in it is coming back right now. It's not. What's going to happen is you're only going to get a payout when you're 55. That's when you can cash out on an additional retirement annuity. Uh, you still can't withdraw from your pension. If you do withdraw from your pension, the tax penalties are so high, it's not even worth it. So an insurance, your life insurance policy and your re retirement annuity policy, they're very important. Don't cancel them out. In fact, I would say go and negotiate with your life insurance to add a, a retrenchment benefit to it. You might even have it at this point in time and you don't know. So if you end up retrenched, you can cash in on that uh, retrenchment benefit that comes with your life insurance policy. Yo, that is hectic. <laughs> that is hectic. So basically we should continue saving because that sounds scary to think that um, like right now where you actually have prospects and you have a hope that COVID-19 will end and you start earning money again. If you do this and you don't actually plan for retirement, there's nothing to look forward to because you're going to be stuck in there like that. Like you're broke, you are no income and you're at home. Uh-uh, guys, it's necessary. <laughs> anyway, we have another question. It says, what what should we expect financially as consumers? Uh, financially as consumers, and I'll take this taking into consideration COVID and in the South African situation, I'll take into considering, consideration junk status, travel, all of these things that thanks to COVID and all other situations that we're falling into. Um, in particular, in South Africa, we are going to people can expect the cost of living to go up. Uh, why? We are a country that has a bad credit record in terms mm -hmm. of you know, our investment grade. So it's very mm -hmm. expensive for us to borrow money and it's very expensive for us to service any um, obligations that are foreign currency backed because the RAND is really not doing anyone a lot of favors at this moment. So nope, it ain't. Yeah, the biggest, our biggest import is fuel as a country. And the price of fuel is directly linked to the price of everything from healthcare to food, especially food. So we are going to find the cost of living, especially in those two avenues, are going to go up drastically the price of basic commodities is going to grow up because you know you need transport to transport to get food in stores and things like that because of this cost that's going to go up the foreign currency cost that's going to go up uh, companies might find it very hard to get the stuff that they want overseas or might find it hard to get investments to continue funding their businesses so we they would rather lose manpower and work with the reduced uh, labor force and, and, and stay afloat. So we're going to also experience job losses. And thanks to COVID-19, that's already happening. And the last part is something that we can look forward to. Now, again, I'm not an economist. I'm not a tech specialist. I'm not an, in uh, a financial advisor. But just looking at the markets, this is something that I'm expecting. Uh, where I'm currently based, I'm based in Canada right now, we can mm. all expect a tax hike. Mm. It's inevitable that all this money for the COVID... On, uh, top, of the, on top of the tax we're paying now, <laughs> more tax. Yeah. I've, I've come to expect that next year I'll be paying 41% uh, of my salary to taxes. So this is, this is... Yeah, this is a situation that we find ourselves in where... The money that we've spent putting measures that people so that people can have food to eat in COVID-19 needs to be repaid somehow. And the person who pays that, unfortunately, is the taxpayer. 
So mm. these are things that we can we can expect. We can there's there is no other tax revenue that's coming in for a lot of countries right now. Tourism is closed, um, industries closed. On the good side, we might actually find a lot of countries. Well, I know a lot of countries are already doing this. They're bringing manufacturing back onshore, so we might have a lot more manufacturing jobs uh, being available. But it still doesn't cushion the amount of money that people have spent on COVID alone. And that needs to be repaid. Yeah. So our business Some way tax, and somehow, yeah. Our business taxes, our personal taxes, and our even our estate taxes are going to go up. And it might not be this year. It might be a gradual increase over the next three or four years. Um, the finance minister has said he's tabling a special budget. Is it on the 6th of June? So let's keep our ears open to hear what he's going to say about the taxes then. Yeah, that is so deep. I can't imagine paying more tax, but yo, I guess now that we know what to expect, I guess we'll also be more frugal with our finances. You mentioned living in Canada. Give us, because you are Karen, you live in Canada right now. How is it? I mean, obviously from a financial landscape as well, but how is, like, do you sometimes wish <laughs> you could come back? Like, I and I, I guess I'm also speaking from a financial perspective because I know when I was overseas, there's, there are times when I actually thought it financially it was easy. It would have been easier for me to be back home. So in COVID-19 and probably in like looking at the next 12 or so months, do you think, how is it there? Like, are people seeing flames? Like we're seeing flames. Do you wish you could come back? Or are you like, oh, I'm chilled? Is the effects of you probably paying so much tax? And is it less? Because I mean, you are in a developed country and obviously it's definitely different because yeah, you may pay a lot of taxes, but you know, you don't get great services from the government in terms of transport, etc. So how is it? So um, huh, this is a very difficult question. I won't lie. Well, I can only speak for my position because, uh, you know, every person's story is different, right? Financially, I'm mm. not badly affected by, co- by COVID. However, my investments did take a hit, Right. Well, that's life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the unemployment rates in North America, to be particular, are really, really mm. bad. In the U.S., 30 million people have filed for unemployment benefits. Now, Canada has a population of 31 million. This literally means the whole of Canada, except for 1 million people, have applied when we move it to the case of the United States, have applied for unemployment benefits. Secondly, when I when I look at Canada itself, there's 3 million people filing for unemployment. So 10% of the country has been affected badly. Do I wish I, I can come back home? Yes, especially when I walk into a grocery store and I have to pay mm. 80 for one avocado. That's not even big. Like literally, people say, oh, it's expensive, but food in this part of the world is very mm. very expensive um mm. in terms of cost of living it is very very high um rent is literally high you know i really miss paying 2500 rent or paying 4500 rent or whatever i was paying then because my rent is now in well it's it's actually now in the 20ks rent terms for an apartment that's smaller than what I lived in 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 Joburg so Mm. that cost of living situation is you know earning like you know people get blinded they'll be told no you earn 80k a month when you work in Canada 80k a month when I'm in South Africa means I'm a goddess I am doing the most with that 80k you know I am driving Mm. CDs, I am doing all of this. 80k in Canada, especially in Ontario, means I am paying ridiculously very high taxes, which is offset by the fact that healthcare is free. Not all healthcare, I still have to pay for dental and I still have to pay for IK. But the basic things like being admitted into hospital is free, right? 
Um, yeah. But I'm still paying a lot more in terms of food, in terms of, tra- yeah, transport. Well, the car, the the gas, which is the petrol, is, is quite cheap. And the, there are other taxes that come in here. You know, uh, in South Africa, we buy food that has the VAT amount included. So if you're paying 99, if it's 99 Rand, it's 99 Rand inclusive of that. Here, mm. if it's $99, it's $99 excluding GST, as we call it. Mm. And they're still... so Which is general to, sales tax. Yeah. You you get to the till and then you'll be like, oh, here's your... And they'll be like, no, it's not 99 Rand. It's 99 plus 13. Thank you very much. Plus 13%. <laughs> that's the tax that you pay. That is so, hectic. Yeah. Um, there's pros and cons to everything. The cost of living in South Africa is really low and it's very favorable. Food is very cheap, despite the mm. fact that we have uh, socioeconomic issues that mean a lot of people do go hungry. Food is very cheap. Healthy food is actually very cheap because uh, whole foods and ain't cheap people. Whole foods and cheap. Yeah. The cheap food here is canned food and it's not really healthy for anyone. Yo, that's insightful. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Do you have any, before we let you go, please leave us with like parting words for our fellow adults. I mean, we're all adults and this life thing showing us flames, some more than others, but we could use any words of wisdom and also just to plug us as to where we can um, get hold of you on social media if people want like one-on-one coaching if group coaching or you know all that jazz okay so um let me drop my social media handles first uh you can find me on instagram and on twitter at miss amina's blog m-s-a-a-m-i-n-a-h S-B-O-L-G, that's one word. Uh, let me repeat that, at M-S-A-A-M-I-N-N-A-H-S-B-O-L-G, Miss Amina's blog. That's the same handle on Twitter and Instagram. You can also um, go to my website, which is www.persesandchicks.com. Checks with a, a Q Q U E, not a C K, not the American spelling. Purses and checks dot com. Um, you can go in the comment section. You can go in the about section, and you can uh, leave me. You can email me through that. You can you can send an email directly to me through the contact form on my website. In terms of parting words. I would say it's very important for us to not be emotional at this point in time, um, to not be both positively overexcited and negatively overexcited about our finances at this point in time. There's the, the golden rule of money is money has one rule. It has two rules. You spend it, it's gone. You say you, you keep it around, it, uh, it sticks. But if you spend it wisely, you get a lot more benefit out of it. If you store it under your mattress, it's not going to do anything much for you. So it's very important for us to have a very level head and not only a level head, a level headed approach to our finances at this point in time. It's important for us to be very emotionless in terms of how we're dealing with our money. Um, let's not get excited and take out more debt. Let's not get excited and cancel out plans or investments that could give us a lot of, um, that could pay out better in the future. Let's not be people who want to uh, cash in on things that we really don't understand. Do a lot of research before you you invest in anything. Um, mm. And just make sure that you develop a healthy relationship with your money. The ultimate financial freedom is not having an abundance of money, but it's making it's you getting to a point where your money, where you make decisions for your money, and your money doesn't make decisions for you. That's my point. Yo, guys, I'm charging. 
my bank account numbers will be in the descriptions in all on all platforms and i want <laughs> i want my money i brought y'all content okay thank you so much for sharing it was great having you and we hope you can come back and share more pearls of wisdom yes and hopefully the next time we come back we are talking about you know other aspects of money like financial inclusivity, like financial abuse you know all those other nice things about money that you know we we don't want really we don't really want to talk about and we're not just worrying or acting out of fear because right now we're yeah and also just to exit survival mode and start flourishing oh guys i think we deserve that no thank you very much we are excited for the future